you will know. Yes. You guys can hear me okay, right? So uh, we are in Matthew 19, and uh, we started last week in verse uh, 1, and, and from uh, deciding how much to cover today, it was a little bit awkward because uh, I wanted to spend a little time on, on what we might think of as leftovers from last week's passage. Um, uh, the latter part of the chapter has a, a section that is well known to us that covers a lot of uh, uh, good content and um, that may be too hard to do both so we may wind up with a, a shorter lesson today but that's okay. Uh, a couple of things to, to highlight and we're going to for sure cover through um, verse 15 today but just by way of review uh, in verse 1 of chapter 19 uh, we have this uh, transition that Matthew gave us. Uh, now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, which had been the center of his ministry prior to then, and he entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So now he's made his way south. He's getting closer to Jerusalem. And, of course, the final events of his earthly life, um, at least that segment of his earthly life, um, uh, is going to be in and around Jerusalem. And verse 2, it says, and, loud, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And we talked about uh, his interactions with the Pharisees. And I came across a commentary who said that one way of thinking about this particular passage were the, the sayings of Jesus, where he had two sayings to the Pharisees and two sayings to the disciples. And I, I kind of circled them. Uh, the first uh, is in response to the Pharisees' question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And then verse 4, it says, and he answered. And so I circled that. And he gives an answer to them, goes back to creation and talks about divorce and so forth. Then they, they have another question in verse 7. It says, well, then why did Moses say that we could divorce? I'm paraphrasing. Um, they actually mangled it worse than that. Uh, and then in verse 8 it says and he said to them so he gives them his second answer then we're going to look at verse uh, 10 um, where there's another question from the disciples today um, verse 11 uh, has an answer uh, of Jesus and so does uh, verse 14 uh, so uh, just as we think about this back and forth first of all between the Pharisees and Jesus, and secondly, between the disciples and Jesus, it's just a nice um, way to think about, uh, here's a rabbi who's being asked his opinion about different things uh, by different groups of people, and his answers um, are a little bit different depending on what group he talks to, um, uh, but it's all, the, it's all the same truth, and so there's a, there's a difference between his comments, but then there's also a, um, a consistency among the comments, and I think just in general, that's, that's good for us, right? As we have conversations with people, uh, our truth should always be the same, right? We shouldn't um, have one story at church and a whole different story at work, right? That's hypocritical. We don't want to do that. But it's certainly fine to, to change how we deliver the message and, and what we choose to say and, and what we choose to leave out and so forth because we are speaking to a different audience. We may have different... Um, we may have different um, motivations. I might be much 
more vocal and toe-to-toe with a really good friend of mine because I've got all this history that says, oh, he loves me, and we're just talking about this topic. And just because we're talking about this topic doesn't change how it feels about me. But someone that's just an acquaintance, they may not, they might not distinguish between the two. So um, it's just kind of um, a little um, bird's eye view of, of those interactions. Um, this might be a, a good time. I had also said that last week uh, we did talk about the, the topic of divorce, and I had kind of left it open that if anyone had any particular questions about it, I would try to take a shot at those. Um, anything pop into mind? Any particular questions? Yay. <laughs> uh, that's, that's awesome. Thank you, Lord. Um, if those... <laughs> If those come to mind, uh, uh, let me know. Shoot you an email. That, that's right. There we go. <laughs> that sounds super safe, Cleaver. Uh, shoot me an email. All right. So there is, um, it is worth uh, having um, this kind of transition. So uh, in verse 4, uh, Jesus says, uh, Haven't you read that, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he's talking about marriage. And it says, you know, if God's put these two people together, they're one flesh and so forth. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Shows up in a lot of uh, uh, marriage vows. Uh, and uh, they always seem to um, get that one in the movie. Uh, also, uh, various movies. Um, uh, let's see. Let's do verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So this is uh, leading into our focal verses today. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So what do you make of that comment? So they're a little surprised at this, right? Remember, they have grown up, so to speak, and, and we think these are disciples, um, Jesus' disciples were, were young young men. Uh, I don't really have an idea of the ages, but I, I figure they're probably in that, maybe even that 18 to 25 demographic. And so at this, in this culture, many of their peers were probably already married, right? Uh, married fairly young. Certainly the, the um, women were, were probably much younger. Life expectancy wasn't very long. And uh, they would often want to take advantage of those childbearing years uh, as soon as possible, which seems very young by our standards. But um, in any event, they're hearing this, and they've grown up in a culture where if... A man was somewhat dissatisfied with his wife. It wasn't that hard to hand her a certificate of divorce and be free to do whatever you wanted to after that. So Jesus is really scoping that way down and says the really the only reason that this is going to be okay, and even then not God's ideal, uh, is if there's some uh, sexual sin as the basis for 
breaking that one flesh covenant that was originally started. And they're hearing this and they're like, well, gosh, it's just better not to marry in the first place. Um, so Jesus says, well, yes, but he said, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. In other words, yes, if, if this has been a sobering discussion for you, then that is what I intended. And you probably haven't been taking it as seriously as you should have, uh, but only those to whom it is given. So there's this concept here that that God has in mind who is to be married and, and who isn't to be married. And he's going to go into this section about reasons why it might be better not to marry. So let's look at these. Verse 12, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Wow. Don't see a lot of sermons talked about this verse. All right. So for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Uh, there is... Um, uh, a very polarized um, view on, in some parts of the world, even in some parts of evangelical Christianity, that you're male or female, right? Um, and all this stuff about gender that we hear so much in the press, that's just a bunch of hooey, it's, it's got bad intentions and and you're either a man or a woman well that's nice for argument's sake perhaps but it's not really true through genetic malformations and and certain other things that happen during development of an embryo sometimes things go awry and sometimes children are born with, we say it's an ambiguous situation where even from the outside you might not be able to tell. And, you know, Cindy's maybe uh, come across this in her career, um, you know, this big dramatic moment where you say it's a girl or it's a boy and sometimes you don't say anything because you may not be sure. And even a few weeks later, you may not be sure. Things that, you know, what's on the outside may be different than what's on the inside as far as the sex organs and so forth. So uh, there is this segment of our population, a segment of the world where it's, it's different. It's not just boy or girl. And so, you know, the Bible isn't a science book, but in the areas where the Bible interfaces science, it's on the right side. And so here Jesus is acknowledging there is this category of people 
that he calls eunuchs from birth. In other words, some boys are just born this way. He's talking to these young men. I'm assuming he's mostly talking about boys at this point. But he's saying, I think broadly, you're going to have some boys who are not going to marry. And it started from birth. There was something different about them that's not going to progress to the natural, ultimate desire for marriage like perhaps some. All right, And we can talk about this more in a minute. Category number two. There are some eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. So we understand that in this culture, and especially uh, where there were lots of slaves, if you were a prominent slave uh, in, um, say, the, maybe you had been captured uh, and you were going to be put in the court, especially uh, in the king's court, maybe around a lot of his uh, daughters, uh, princesses, and perhaps wives or wives, um, you might be made a eunuch so as to eliminate any uh, issues, shall we say, between um, spoiling the, the royal lineage. Um, clearly, there were some people who had been made eunuchs, uh, boys, men, who had basically been castrated and, and um, therefore would not have perhaps the same inclinations as a typical young man. Then the third category, it says, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Um, oh, there's a second. And then thirdly, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. So the, this isn't referring, of course, to someone who has, you know, operated on themselves, um, but someone who has made that decision of singleness and celibacy for the sake of the work before them. Uh, I'm choosing a single unmarried lifestyle because it's just, it's not going to be compatible with what God's calling me to do. Um, John the Baptist was in this category. Jesus himself was in this category. Um, you know, in various um, uh, times throughout history, there have been people who for the desire to focus on their faith have taken this uh, vow so to speak of celibacy now one thing to quickly note there's nothing in this passage that says that people who make that decision are, are more spiritual than people that don't but it's certainly um, a valid choice and Jesus is saying here and, and Paul kind of reinforces elsewhere that this is a very valid choice for people who are putting God at the top of their priority list and and being very sensitive to what he has for them to for that person to do. If you think about it, we through various um sources as far as the the dating of Jesus' birth and ministry um most people come to the conclusion that he started his earthly ministry around 30. And we don't know any different, but the assumption is that because his dad was a, car, a carpenter, that we assume 
that he grew up in that environment and probably did the things that his dad has been doing. So if you think about, you've got this 28, 29-year-old man um, who's been working real hard in his dad's shop. Maybe he has part ownership. I don't know how that worked back then. But he's been working, and he's probably eight or so years older than, or maybe more than his peers who were getting married. How many people in the village had tried to set him up? Right? How many people had tried to get Jesus married off? And, uh, you know, how do you just say, well, I've got this whole king of the world thing I'm working on, um, so it's just really not good for me to bring a girl into that right now. Um, you can't say that. So we can confidently say Jesus didn't lie. So I would have thought his responses must have been amazingly creative, right? Because he had to he had to answer them. Oh no, I you know yes I know she's lovely, but I mean you know <laughs> it just would have been really interesting. I never really thought about that until this lesson. Uh, all the excuses that Jesus had to give for why he wasn't uh, dating. Uh, so these three categories: eunuchs from birth, eunuchs who were made eunuchs, and then those who were chosen to be eunuchs. Now it's interesting. Um, pastor uh, last week, I think it was last week, when he was talking and uh, going through Acts and talked about the the eunuch that Philip um, uh, witnessed to who got saved. One of the amazing things about that was, you know, that person, that man, would not have been welcome in the Jewish temple. They were specifically excluded. Uh, if you were a man who, and I don't know how they checked all this, but, you know, if you didn't have all the typical parts of a guy, you couldn't come into the temple. If there was an animal that was had maybe had some injury or something, they couldn't come into the temple. It was not fitting with the holiness and all that sort of thing. Uh, so here, you know, you have this eunuch who certainly knew that because... He had actually been going to Jerusalem to worship. He wouldn't have been able to make it all the way in, so he was on the periphery. But now he gets saved and is fully welcomed into the kingdom. And uh, So that's just a great story. Um, so these three categories of, of eunuchs. And if you cone out, now you've seen Jesus talk about marriage. And now you've seen him talk about singleness, which um, is probably a, a, an area of teaching of, of many churches that um, hasn't really gone super well. Um, uh, I don't know, but I, I haven't been on any pastor search committees, and those of you that have, I won't put you on the spot, but I wonder how that resume would be viewed if you got a resume from this young sold out guy for God who wasn't married I'm not sure it would be looked at with the same weight as someone who was 
maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not sure that we've done a, a super job um, talking about how we handle singleness within the church. Verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Uh, this was a common practice. Uh, if you are a rabbi, um, you would, if there was a rabbi, you brought, you brought your children to the rabbi, uh, and they would say a blessing over your children. Um, so this wasn't an uncommon thing, but the disciples being the, uh, you know, 20-something-year-old guys that they were, uh, the disciples rebuked the people. Uh, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So, we don't hear a ton of parenting advice in the Bible. There's some. Um, uh, those of us who have had children at various points in time probably always wish there was more. Um, but here we have Jesus saying, "Yeah, you know, what are you doing, guys? Of course. Let them come to me. Um, if you got to think... It all is back and forth with the Pharisees. Finally, he's got somebody that's not going to try to trip him up, right? <laughs> so he could hang out with the kids a little bit and enjoy them. And uh, it says lay hands on them, um, which might be different from the way we sometimes lay hands on children, um, and uh, bless them and, and send them away. Um, so it raises a concept of, you know, what about, what about children? Um, um, how do we how do we look at children? I think there's been this probably over the last hundred years uh, this transition of um, how to how do you look at children? Um, now I know that this is definitely um, colored by the you know the drama, but um, uh, we were looking at this. Uh, show the other day, this PBS show Downton Abbey. You guys maybe have seen this, right? So a couple of the characters have children, and not long after they're born, they're handed over to a nanny. And then the parent sees them what seems like maybe an hour or two a day. Um, and the rest is just all with a nanny, right? <laughs> and those kids are just there to give the occasional hug and to make an appearance. and It's a very kind of a standoffish sort of thing. And how many people have heard, oh, children are to be seen and not heard, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't think that's, I mean, that's not too antique of a phrase. I, I certainly uh, uh, have heard of it. Um, how do we look at children today? Well, if we take our cues from culture, um, and if you scan and look at a commercial on TV or a comedy show on TV, children have gone from not being seen and heard to basically children run the house. 
Children are the smartest, most perceptive. Um, they have the highest um, uh, judgment, is the word I'm looking for, on things. Uh, it's, you know, and the parents are made to look like idiots sometimes. Um, well, that doesn't seem right to me, right? <laughs> and I don't think I'm being overly prejudiced in my adultness. Um, where's, our, where's our balance? And of course, you know, hats off to people who've really poured their lives into children for all these years and um, from a church standpoint. Um, I just think it's, it's interesting to have seen that, that transition. Uh, I found a commentary from, that made a that spoke on these verses from and it was published in uh, the early 50s and this was I think the uh, the time when the big push for uh, what we now call Sunday school was going on right because it was in those probably in the 60s and, and early 70s perhaps when you know every church had four or five school buses when go round up all the kids and, and bring them right because but listen to this and see if you think it's still true or if it's dated or I'm interested in your comments it says the great end in religious instruction whether in the Sunday school or the family is not to stamp our minds irresistibly on the young but to stir up their own not to make them see with our eyes but to look inquiringly and steadily with their own not to give them a definite amount of knowledge but to inspire a fervent love of truth not to form an outward regularity but to touch inner springs not to burden the memory but to quicken and strengthen the power of thought not to tell them that god is good but to help them see and feel his love and all that he does within and around them in a word, to awaken the intellectual and moral life in the child. I thought that was kind of interesting and maybe perhaps pretty advanced for the 50s because very often things were rote, right? <clears throat> I mean, my kids, did they loved Bible drill, right? Which And they spent some time in... A private Christian school where you were memorizing Bible verses and uh, memorizing Christian songs and um, and I think there's value in that but this commentator says even even better with that you know help them move beyond just that and, and to open them their eyes about how uh, God is wanting to interact with them and so I I don't know, I thought that was an interesting quote for um, 60 years ago, or 70 years ago, I guess now. Um, another commentator on this um, passage says, uh, he isn't bothered by the fact that some of the children who are brought to him can't talk properly, that some may be dirty and smelly, and that some will be up to mischief the moment they think nobody's looking he simply relishes the young life bubbling up like water from a fountain and refusing to be quenched. That's what God's kingdom is like, full of new and unpredictable life. Little children, trusting, adventurous, eager, ready to be drawn into stories and dramas, 
are just the sort of people the kingdom is for. As in chapter 9, this is a rebuke to the disciples. If they are to stop, if they are trying to stop children coming to Jesus, this shows that they've got their priorities exactly upside down. Uh, I thought that was very good. Let the children come to me. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. One commentary brought in to this, you know, what does this say about, um, say, infants who have died? Um, or does it say anything? Um, uh, from a passage in Isaiah, people have pulled out this concept called the age of accountability. There's a certain age at which a child knows right from wrong and there's a certain time before then where they don't and how does God handle them knowing that we are all dirty rotten sinners from birth uh, because of original sin how does God handle that and I think most of us have uh, come to a decision that um, God's a good God and, and God's a gracious God and and because God is a good God and because God is love, that he's going to figure that out in ways that are consistent with that. And, um, and most people feel good about that. Um, uh, it's not as clear-cut in Scripture as we would probably want. Um, uh, our Reformed folks um, have um, tried to tidy this up uh, uh, through Reformed theology um, uh, and the covenant family and that sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure their efforts, um, I mean, while well-intentioned, I'm not sure they're necessary. Um, I just trust that God's a good God and he's going to figure all that out. Um, another comment about children um, one commentator said that basically Christianity is the religion that does right by its children. That, you know, back in the Roman day, if you didn't want a kid, you just throw it over the wall. Um, we know that China had um, a one-child rule for many years. It may still be the official stance, but that many, especially uh, girl babies, were disposed of because if you were only going to have one kid and because women were not as highly valued, then they were done away with. Um, we know about uh, just the, the whole abortion debate and, and how that um, goes into valuing uh, unborn uh, babies. Um, so um, Christianity, I think, is, is a faith that does right by its children. Um, and you can you can go through all the major non-Christian faiths and uh, and see where they they really break down. Um, the the value just isn't just isn't there uh, as when you look at at a child as someone made in God's image, um, loved by God, just as just as these children were. All right, I guess I'll pause there. Um, any other comments? One final thing. Um, 
I was looking in this concept of singleness and so forth. I wondered, you know, if this passage, which is not a passage that's usually used when people are talking about the concept of homosexuality, does this passage about eunuchs from birth, does that, could that go beyond the physical? Could you construe his comments as, as boys that were perhaps going to be born with lesser than the usual desires for the opposite sex? Would that come there? And if so, then the command is not for you know, judgment against how they were born, but it's included in a paragraph on singleness that that God is going to provide the grace for that person um, to live a life consistent with Scripture, but just a singleness. Singleness is not lesser. Um, I thought it was interesting also in our current climate that this topic is talked about um, along with another hot topic of the day, and that's racism in the Baptist faith and message. That's where Southern Baptists have said, this is what we think about certain topics. I'll quote one verse. It says, In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality and pornography we should work to provide for the orphaned the needy the abused the aged the helpless and the sick we should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death every christian should seek to bring industry government and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness truth and brotherly love and in order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and his truth. I thought that's a pretty decent statement. All right, well, let's close. Father, we thank you that um, you speak to us uh, through Scripture in surprising ways and in relevant ways and in, in ways that are just eternal but also current. And um, we pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, uh, apply uh, these truths as we meet with people, as we talk with people, as we um, love people who maybe are not exactly like um, the stereotypes. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to continue to recognize uh, the grace that we have all received um, and uh, that we approach others in that same fashion. We thank you for Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.